It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello, loyal listeners. Marin Somerset Webb here. I thought we'd bring you yet another bonus episode to the Marin Talks Money feed. It's an episode of another podcast here at Bloomberg called In the City, hosted by Francine Lacroix and David Merritt. Every week, Fran and Dave unpack the story that's driving the conversation in the city of London. John, you listen to the show, right? I said, yeah, it's, it's really good. Um, and if anyone wants to flick through the back catalogue, I'd particularly recommend the ones with Nick Candy um, and Guy Hans, which are both very interesting and some quite telling quotes from both of those guys. Oh, I have not listened to the Nick Candy one. I'm going to do that. And by the way, while you're looking at um, back episodes, do listen to our back episodes too. Some of them are really good, right, John? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Put them to the top of your menu. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this week, their episode is a look at what is next for the Bank of England. Features some familiar voices, Bloomberg reporters and columnists that have joined our show, plus a few new ones. So I do hope you enjoy listening. And if you do, consider subscribing to In the City. It's the last mile, which obviously where policy is really doing the work. And we're going to have to see policy stay restrictive. Now, the question then is for how long? Right, that's the question. Now, I'm afraid the answer is because we don't know at the moment. That's why we say for sufficiently long to have its effect, because it's too soon to judge really how long that's going to take. Welcome to In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations at the heart of the city of London. I'm Francine Lacroix, and this week, a deep dive into the thinking at the Bank of England. Well, at least we try. You just heard Governor Andrew Bailey there telling me after last week's rate decision, it is too soon for the UK to declare a victory in the battle against inflation. We're in the last mile, as he puts it, and the last mile will need a prolonged period of restrictive interest rates. So is he right? Let's bring in the Bloomberg Brain Trust on the BOE. We have a Bloomberg opinion columnist, Marcus Ashworth, the brain of Bloomberg opinion on economics. From our Bloomberg economics team, Anna Andrade, and our reporter who covers the bank, and the Governor Bailey, Tom Reese. So thank you all. So why do we care, Marcus, about the Bank of England? Because they are at the risk of potentially putting our economy into recession when they have no need to. And they have also tightening monetary policy in a way, in a manner which is very hard to read, perhaps. Their communication skills have been severely lacking. They've stop-started and, and perhaps not have their own confidence of, I think, looking out the window and really realising what's going to happen next. And principally, I think they haven't been patient enough. Yeah, and so we're going to go pretty in the weeds about inflation forecasting, mean averages and things like that. But actually, people need to care about central banks when an economy could be on the brink because it changes everything, Tom. Yeah, I think we're at a real crunch point where it could go two ways. And um, I, I don't think the Bank of England knows definitely which way it's gone. We know we've had, we've had that softer inflation print in June, which has given us a glimmer of hope after 
some really grim data earlier in the year, but I, it could, I think it's still very much up for grabs which way it goes. And I think we're on a real, um, yeah, having a real crunch point. Yeah, we underestimate really the, the power of central banks to make or break an economy. Um, yeah, I think it's just important. I think people are interested in knowing, um, you know, why is inflation still high? Uh, whose whose fault is it? I think essentially that's kind of the question uh, a bit. Is it is the government to blame? Is the BOE? But yeah, I think it's important to kind of unpack what different, you know, institutions could have done differently. What do you think the governor's doing now, Marcus? Well, I hope he's thinking long and hard <laughs> about what he's doing to the UK economy. Um, and... What, on holiday? Uh, Hiking? Well, I, he doesn't deserve to be on holiday, in my humble opinion. He seems to be going back and, and relearning some economic principles. But uh, yeah, I do think that the Bank of England are buying time at the moment. Their whole uh, construct, and, and interestingly what they've done with their latest quarterly economic forecasts, uh, tells you, you know, some sense that they are, they are more confident than they were in the last uh, one in May over where their inflation is. And that's because they've, you can see they've, uh, raised actually their expectations for inflation, but their their margin of error, if you want to get, or, or their confidence is increased, uh, and I think they're building in, in themselves a big buffer. Uh, we also saw uh, Chief Economist Pill come out and say that he thinks food prices are going to be high and remain high at ten percent or higher. I actually think they won't be. I think he doesn't think they will be either. But they'd rather be wrong <laughs> with inflation falling faster. Marcus, I think you. I mean, I think you're harsh. Okay, I've told you this before, and I don't know whether whether Tom and Anna agree with me, but hindsight is a beautiful thing, right? Well, I mean, they could have maybe hiked quicker interest rates, but they're trying to play catch up. You want me to be really harsh, then? Okay, <laughs> let's get right, to They the shouldn't have talked about negative rates uh, last year before. They, they should not have, have, have faffed around as they did. They got the first hike interest rates. Okay, but are they playing they catch slow. up? Yeah. In, in Marcus's defence, I think there is a moment last year. I think it's the June meetings. The BOE raises interest rates by only 25 uh, basis points and the Fed the day before did it by 75 basis points. And you can you can just see that's the moment where they front-loaded a lot more than we did and I think we're, the consequences are bearing out. So I do have some sympathy for your view, Marcus. I agree with Tom, with Tom that the moment where they could maybe have acted differently was kind of over the summer. Um, we had a lot of, you know, data showing that, you know, uh, price pressures are very high. The labor market was very tight. But I don't know if you remember as well. And I think this is the key contrast with what was happening in the US was that we had a major energy shock that was going to deliver a big income squeeze that the US just didn't have. So in a way, the BOE was kind of to a certain extent relying on the real income squeeze doing a lot of the job for it. And then, you know, we had this change in energy prices at the start of the year, so that changed the outlook completely. And I think it was over the summer that consumer uh, confidence indicators were just hit like historical lows. So the situation was pretty grim. And maybe now with a hindsight, yes, a couple of more of 75s could have been um, done. But deciding that at that time, I think it would have been difficult. Is it also done the composition of the MPC, the way that everybody gets a vote and it's the same vote that makes it more difficult to see the overall direction? Or was it a problem with forecasts? It seems like it was more a problem with the forecast. And as some of the rate setters have admitted, you know, Hugh, Hugh Pill has talked about kind of the way their forecasts have looked at the shocks and what would happen with the shocks. They haven't quite worked in this, the way they thought they would. As in, I don't know whether they thought the shocks would come out of the inflation figures quicker than it has done. So I, I think it seems to be a, a problem with the forecast. And maybe that's why we're having the Bananki review. Yeah, well, great. Get the master of uh, modern QE and, and, and asset price bubbles to mark your homework. 
Which just tells me that their, whole, their entire econometric model is, is failed. Their uh, whole view from going back well before inflation took off uh, was looking completely in the wrong direction. As I mentioned earlier, negative rates, which they were enforced the, on the entire um, UK banking system to prepare for, and then continue doing QE up the end of uh, 2021, even technically after they'd raised rates, they were still adding and buying QE. They completely refuse to understand and accept. And they just simply rely on a forecasting model rather than look out the window. And that's my basic problem with the Bank of England. They ignored Hal Dane, who's the chief economist. Uh, they've ignored a number of different people. Their group think within and their conviction and their, their own, whole approach and reliance on a model which has failed them is where they are continuing to make mistakes. And the risk now is that having made a big mistake and not hiking too early and not seeing what how much stimulus they're putting in, that they're now doing the opposite and, and overdoing it. Har- harsh. I mean, Marcus, harshest. Actually. I can get harsher. Okay. I really can. I, <laughs> I agree that the models were kind of maybe uh, not well suited for this kind of inflationary uh, shock that we're living now. I don't think that's necessarily a problem of the Bank of England per se. Um, I just think that, you know, the, the, as, as Tom was saying, it was kind of the persistence that they like. I mean, the, the size of the shocks they couldn't have anticipated because, you know, they like there was the... The, the Russian um, war and um, that, that drove energy and food prices. But I think the way that they do their modeling is not widely different than other central banks do it. I think we also pro- got it wrong. I, uh, yeah, sorry. I don't and think that, that, there's anything to be... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. And, and just to say that I think it has been of a particular problem here in the UK because of, you know, the nature of inflation that we kind of experienced because, you know, like the US is already benefiting from you know, at this inflation process, um, maybe because they didn't have the big energy shock that the UK in the Eurozone, you just don't have this kind of hot labor market adding to it. So I think this is what's kind of complicating the Bank of England's position, but its framework, in essence, I don't think it's any difference. And and I would just say that I think they've actually been quite humble about it. I think they've been transparent. Um, and I think they've been opening, just just opening their, rev- their forecasting process to an external, um, even though, you know, you can disagree with the choice, but just to step I think it's you know it hasn't been taken by other central banks. The, the strange thing is, is that there is actually there has been ever since um, this inflation surge started has been quite a lot of diversity of opinion on the MPC. You know, in 2021 we had, as, as you mentioned, Haldane and Michael Saunders both warning about this. You know that Haldane was the bank's chief economist, and he would seem to be basically ignored by Bailey and uh, the other deputy governors. And recently we've had, you know, Swati Dingra and Tenreiro against Catherine Mann, the, the bank's chief hawk. So it's not that there's been a lack of diversity of opinion on the MPC. It just doesn't seem to have made much difference in how policy is played out. Because the internals have overruled all the externals throughout. Yeah. And that's... But we're not even touched on the way I do think the banking is different. For econometrical models aside... Um, which I've not been a huge fan of, and I don't think they understand what they're looking but, for. But they could change, Marcus, right? But With the Bernanke there's review. a thing called uh, there's a thing <laughs> called uh, active and passive quantitative tightening, and that's where the Bank of England are dramatically different from the rest of their yes. peers, and that's where they're compounding the felony. So, I, I mean, I remember actually being in a press conference and and then having an interview with Governor Bailey afterwards and trying to you know, understand the linkage, for example, in QT, if if they did QD of a certain amount, how, how much it would, t- you know, hike interest rates by. <laughs> and they didn't know the answer to that. Sh- should they have known They've the answer? They've had several different answers. All of them changed according to what suits them. But the basic but, point is they don't know. But they don't know be- because it's impossible to know or, or because... Well, they-, they currently think it's the whole combined of active and passive 
and, and the whole approach is only adding, they reckon, about 10 basis points. I've asked them to explain that, and they, they have not answered it so far. I guess we might get more of an idea of the, the impact when they stop hiking bank rate and continue QT. Maybe that's when we'll see whether it's having an impact on yields. Yeah, I, th- I think it's very hard to... I think the main tool is still the bank and that's what's kind of you know having uh, more more impact but uh, but I also I wouldn't overplay the importance of of models I think broadband made this point at the press conference that it is a collective judgment and that that, that will always be the case so um you know this review is a step in the right direction but it might change a bit more on how the bank communicates I think there might be some room for improvement there but in terms of bringing in new models or new you know new approaches to to forecasting, I think there will still be a big error component that just comes from the fact that, you know, we're all humans. So, so let's go back to the 2% inflation target. This is set by the government, right? There's there's not a statue actually setting it out like other central banks. So could the government change it? Yeah, I think the government's learned a lesson not to take the Bank of England on in the political sense um, after debacle last autumn. Throughout that, the, the bank not only continued to raise interest rates, but also to go ahead with active quantitative tightening, which is the first and still the only major central bank to do so. But uh, the government can lay out a number of different things if it chooses to, but it's quite clear there was exchange of letters in April between the bank and, you know, essentially the Chancellor. I love this. This is such a a British quirk, right? So you have to write, if if you're above target, you write a letter to the Chancellor. (laughs) Yeah, it's meaningless. They both know it's meaningless and no one ever reads them. But, yeah, but but nice. I read them. Well, do you mean no one ever reads them? I read them. I read them. I read them. Well, best of luck, as I said. <laughs> I mean, you know what they're going to say, and none of it changes anything. But the point is, is that yes, there is a two percent inflation target, which is exactly standard across. You know, as the econometric models are standard, so is our inflation target. Is there a time to change that? Possibly, they could have done it beforehand. Before, possibly, they may do it after when everything's come down again. In the middle of an inflation battle, they, I don't think they will change it. I don't think they should change it. Yeah, it'd be crazy to change it in the middle of a time when you're kind of struggling with credibility <laughs> anyway. But, I mean, Hugh Pill was asked about this and he, he pushed back against um, any change in the in the target. But, you know, the government's not... I mean, the government's changed the bank's remit, you know, quite a few times recently, added green bells and whistles, etc. So they're not averse to, you know, changing what, what the bank um, is targeting. It would be kind of a big hit to their credibility. And I remember exactly having this conversation when inflation was too low. So they also wanted to change the target. So we cannot just keep kind of coming back to this discussion just whenever inflation doesn't play ball. And I think the important thing to say is that historically, we've been around the target. Inflation has been around 2%. The point is, is that uh, they can, they can within that three-year target range of two, getting 2%, they could be a lot more flexible about that. And that's where I think they could make a difference. That if, say, With the Bank of England or the government, bank, more well, flexible. Well, both bank. in effect, but yeah, but yeah. essentially the Bank of England. But that would hurt their credibility, wouldn't it? Well, no, if they if they went about this in a responsible manner, they say, look, we definitely think with confidence now that we will get below 2% or at 2%, which they already say, but they have for a while. They don't have any confidence in their own forecast. But we're more confident in our forecast. We think it will drop to X by Y. We therefore will not necessarily have to keep tightening monetary policy because we see the glide path in the right direction. And even though it won't hit 2% by whenever, it will by an extra time frame and that more confident on that. But that's essentially what they're saying. 
isn't it? I mean, no, they expect they're not. Actually, but they're looking wage... at backward data, uh, justifying well, another backward indicator, and they're hiking well, interest rates. I mean, private wage sector, right? They're expecting to fall down six percent by December, by the end of the year, yeah. Right, and it's now at seven point seven percent. So they're giving forecasts and saying, "Look, this is a trajectory downwards." Right, Anna. I understand what Marcos is saying. It's essentially how fast do you bring inflation back to two percent? And I think. If they stop now, I think inflation would still maybe settle at 2%. It will just take longer, longer, term. longer yeah. time. And their job, I think, as I see it, is to just bring, you know, get to that target um, as fast as they can. So I think the Bank of England will favor the, you know, continuing to hike. So it won't have the patience to see, you know, and, and what, I think... in September? I mean, they're going to have, what, two inflation prints? Two inflation right, prints, two job data, yeah. Job some data. more information on the economy as well, which, you know, has just become a little bit more... Um, more important. Uh, but just when you compare it to the Fed and to the ECB, I mean, they kind of hinted at the pause or paused when inflation was around 5%. You know, like by, by September, inflation will still be 7% in services. And, and it's just that I think it's very hard. It will be very hard for the for the BOE to stop there. Um, and then in November, I think it's more of an open question. Our call is that they will continue to hike um, there again, because the level is still too high. There's risks stemming from private sector wage growth. Um, but at there, I think, you know, the narrative can change because other central banks have paused for longer. The economy could tank. Um, so it reminds more of an open question. But I think they will prefer to kind of front load it and be. I think that was one of the most interesting parts of um, what Bailey was saying was that he sees several different paths of interest rates to get to the same place. Uh, I, basically, you can leave rates where they are at 5.25% and you still get to the same inflation rate that you get to if you go up by quite a bit more and then come back down again. Um, and I, I think there's also this question about um, how much policy is coming through the pipeline. I mean, we're only just, and I think this is forgotten quite a lot, we're only just 18 months on from the first hike. Um, so we have the first hike in December 2021. The typical lag of monetary policy is always said to be 18 to 24 months. So we're only just getting the, the full effect of that first hike. A lot more to come. So I, I do wonder whether there is this risk of over-tightening given, given how much policy is still to come down the track. Well, they just moved the goalposts, haven't they? Which is, you know, they've done, in essence, what the ECB's trying to do. It's just that they've gone, forget looking at headline inflation, that's going to drop very sharply because everything's going to phase out. They are trying to weirdly confuse us all with food price inflation, which I think they, if they actually look at it, I think they know they may well surprise on the downside on that side. But... They now want to focus on not headline inflation, but on services and particularly on, on private sector wage levels. But Mark, they changed the guideline, right? They talk about crystallizing and then this higher for longer idea, which is very similar to what Lagarde had. Yeah, that's the moving the goalposts, the that moving, they are following yeah. the ECB, which yeah. in turn is following the Fed. But is that just more prudent? Well, it's just the whole point is that they're trying to get away from getting blamed. And they've, they've altered their, their inflation forecast in a quite unusual way. And they've now pushed what they're looking at and they want to be judged by onto something which is a very lagging and a, and a second round effect, which is principally private sector wage levels, which they've given a sort of target at 6% down from 7.7. So it's, they want to be judged in a different way. And that's because they want that higher for longer plateau, because they know they're not going to be at hike rates too much more. I, I was in the press conference with Tom trying to actually get Tom to look at me, but he was so focused on Governor <laughs> Bailey. Tom didn't even notice me, like two, two rows behind you. The, the body language was a bit different. Right than than last time around, I feel like it was a, a bit more relaxed. I don't know whether pressure. I thought it was a bit more solid. Yeah, I thought it was a, they definitely went in there with a message um, on this higher for longer. 
and they basically ignored any questions that wasn't about that <laughs> message. Um, and I think that's why things kind of, you know, became a bit dull in the second half. But yeah, he, he, he seemed a bit more confident, especially, I don't know whether you got that sense in your interview yeah. as well. Yeah, I did. I mean, I think he was more on message. I think he was, he was uh, pretty clear what he was trying to communicate. I mean, I think they, they are a bit indeed more relief uh, because they just got this final CPI print, which was what they needed desperately. Because <laughs> really, like, I mean, if you look at the past three months, um, I mean, if I was on the MPC, I would be kind of, you know, freaking out a bit because it's just that, you know, it's contrary to what the, the, it was happening in the Euros. In the Euro, for instance, food prices were just, the, the inflation was just not falling. And there was a question mark as but, to why. Anna, why, why is it just another, why should they be looking? We can all look at an inflation number. Why do we need the Bank of England and all the many thousands of economists to look at things which we can see ourselves? Inflation is a very, is a lagging indicator. Mm -hmm. And the principle now, they're moving on to an even more, you know, lagging indicator, which is wage levels. This is looking in the rearview mirror to try and throw it forward. What, what would you do differently? I mean, they also have more... Fire more, more fire, <laughs> What, are they in charge? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, can I, can, Governor yeah. Ashworth, can we just think about that <laughs> for, for a one second? One very short day, even short on the trust administration. <laughs> <laughs> can I just, yeah, tip in? I think wage growth is a lagging indicator in the sense that it kind of reacts to tightness of the labor market, which by itself, you know, it's kind of the last thing. Unemployment is the last mm -hmm. thing to react but you can think about it the other way around, which is, and, and I think this is the experience of the past three months, which is, you know, high wage growth leads to higher uh, increases in, in prices ahead. Um, because, and, and that's what you see in the PMIs. If you look at the, at least the last three releases of the PMIs, you see that input inflation, everyone, everyone, not everyone, but the services um, businesses are essentially saying wage costs are too high. And, you know, so, so, so to that extent, I understand what, what, what you mean. I think, you know, um, they're, they're focusing a lot on, on, the, on the review mirror. But again, as I said before, at the start of the year, they wanted to pause. They, they went to, into a conditional pause earlier than the Fed and the ECB. Um, so it's not that they naturally wanted to favor this approach in, in specific. I think they were just really forced by the data and you don't want to commit the, the same error kind of twice. Ben Bernanke, would Governor Bailey be, be happy with that choice? So I've heard <laughs> it both ways, right? That actually he's, you know, he's a bit like him. He's he, he. It would be very difficult for Ben Bernanke to come in and say, actually, you've really, you know, wasted, lost three years and got it all wrong. And then I've heard they could have chosen a, a UK economist um, and that would have been less of a snub. Who I, actually chose Bernanke, by the way? Was it the Bank of England choosing their own? I thought it was the Bank of England choosing, but... Which, to my it, mind, is ridiculous, but there you go. I, it's, <laughs> I don't know. What, what I find interesting, they must be so confident that he's not going to seems, lay into... What, embarrassed them? Um, they announced it. Yeah, I, I, think, I think the big danger about this is that, you know, they've got a lot of criticism from, you know, Tory MPs on the Treasury Committee and, you know, Mervyn King in the House of Lords, the um, ex Bank of England governor. I think there was a risk by choosing Ben Bernanke that he's so part of the central banking fraternity that if he pulls his punches, which he probably will, let's be honest, I think there's a there's a risk that it kind of undermines the whole review. And Tory MPs go, well, it wasn't, you know, you've basically got one of your your mates to do this review. Um, and I think there was a risk that it, it, it just doesn't look legit. And I think they're going to wonk out on it. He's going to go into some proper proper economic theory on it and it'll be, it'll be you know 5,000 pages of this that and the other and everyone's going to go uh what does that mean and yeah. I would love to know what Marcus would have done differently were he were he governor like, I've got, I would have given him like three stars he's got, but I can <laughs> 20 you know. seconds Marcus yeah. what was what would you have done differently that at the time and we've all read your columns I, I, I have week. said I've said already they should never have talked about negative rates they should have never have, have done QE and certainly stopped it far far quicker uh, through the pandemic um, they should have 
hiked interest rates quicker. Uh, I personally think they should have started quantitative tiding before they hiked interest rates. It's a very controversial view, that one. But we will now not be in a situation, uh, and I think they should have been able to, um, you know, have some more confidence in their own abilities to look out the window and read, read, the, read the signs rather than relying on economic metric models, which obviously were never going to work because we've never seen this type of complete shock, which wasn't, I'm not saying it's all the Bank of England's fault, far from it. And the whole fiscal equation we haven't even talked about, yeah. which makes yeah. it almost impossible for the Bank of England to just in, to understand what's going stop start. That's for another episode. Yeah, but the point <laughs> is that they are trying to they are trying to second guess, yes. you know, yes. uh, fiscal, which has been far more important for the last few years since the you know pandemic. So in that sense, um, they got it all wrong. I I would agree that there's still that open question on the real effects of of QE. Um, I think at the time it looked like the right the right approach, uh, and I think we were talking about you know very adverse scenarios where the risks were too high. So I think QE probably was the right message, but you know we don't have the verdict on 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 that. There was an interesting speech I think from Broadband where he kind of made an exercise. Okay, if we wanted to fully offset the inflation that we got um, right now with monetary policy, what, what would have we done differently? And that and that would have mean if you consider the lags in monetary policy that are the 18 months, that would have mean kind of maybe starting hiking, you know, in the first lockdown and maybe hiking by taking rates to double digit interest rates. And I can see Marcus getting impatient. Nice, and, and maybe also like, you know, creating a bigger, you know, an, an imp- I mean, people are concerned now about the risks to unemployment and to the economy, but taking rates by as high as they would need to go to fully offset this inflation shock, then that would kind of, you know, kill the economy as well, I think. Tom, do central banks always get a hard hard time, especially if Marcus is invited on a podcast, when we're in it? I mean, can you only really judge a central bank policy like five years or 10 years after it's done? Because we actually really don't know how inflation plays out. Marcus, Marcus is so not happy with <laughs> yeah, what I've just heard. Yeah, I, I think there is, I think it's fair to basically say, you know, the where inflation is now, it's four times the 2% target. I know a lot of that is to do with external shocks that they can't control, but they can control the more domestically generated inflation that has now replaced, you know, the energy and food shocks and being the main driver of inflation. You look at how much energy, say, is part of um, the current inflation rate. It's very, very small. And so they do have control over those second round effects. And, you know, they probably should have gone earlier, as as Marcus says. Not earlier, so they should have front-loaded it more. Uh, (laughs) Maybe gone earlier as well. Big cheers. (laughs) Thank you all for joining us, and thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. Also, listen and watch. No, also read all of Marcus's (laughs) opinion pieces and also uh, Tom's stories and Anna's great financial reviews. This episode was hosted by me, Francine Lacquas, produced by Summer Saadi and Jill Namazzi. Additional editing by Blake Maples and special, special thanks to Marcus Ashworth, Tom Reese, and Anna Andrade. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.